besides we're talking about what look to be miraculous interventions of God, things that would be out of the norm, supernatural, uh, miracles of various sorts. And you look in Scripture, and often we have these, these signs. Sometimes they're called signs and wonders. Sometimes they are to authenticate that somebody is a real spokesman for God or that God is giving forth his word to be contained, preserved, and passed down through that particular person. In Jesus' case, of course, he did numerous thousands of miracles, signs, wonders to authenticate who he was and the uniqueness uh, of his person. Sometimes in Scripture we find people, uh, they look for signs, for guidance, like Gideon. He wanted a sign. You read it on your own in uh, Judges 6 sometimes. But um, signs play a role in Scripture. But we want to try to look at signs from a a slightly different angle today. We're going to turn to a Scripture in a minute where Jesus deals with a certain kind of people that seek signs. And let me just kind of spread this out a little bit. there are people, for example, that you and I encounter on a regular basis, and honestly, you, you may be one that thinks this way. You know, if God's there, um, you know, and he wants everybody to know it, you know, and, and he cares about everybody, well, you know, it'd be pretty easy for him to show up and convince everybody. And some people you meet may speak like that. And, you know, if he's there, why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he show up? Uh, sometimes we meet with people and they say things like, you know, uh, I gave up on all that God stuff because, you know, my mom was, was one of the best women I ever knew. And when she was deeply sick and ill, I, I prayed, I sought for God to, to heal her and he didn't. Or when I prayed with all my might about that job, that career, and my family was just hanging in the balance and God knew how desperate I was I looked for him to intervene and and give me the open door, the green light, and he didn't. The sign they were looking for didn't come to pass, and so they turned from God. There's a guy, his name is Oliver Saxon, probably some of you are familiar with him. He's a rather famous famous neurologist. He died recently. And uh, in fact, the movie Awakenings, maybe some of you saw that. It was based on a research study of Oliver Sacks. But he said that when he was in early, uh, in his early life as a child, he grew up in a kind of a lightweight Jewish home. They weren't real serious about practicing Judaism. But God was nevertheless considered to be real. And he said as time went on, he became a little bit disillusioned with his family. And in the process, he started to question God. And he decided he would, he would make a test and look for a sign from God. And maybe some of you have looked for a sign from God for something. But Oliver Sacks decided this. He was going to plant in the family garden two rows of radishes. And he did. And he asked God, if you're there, if you're real, I want you to curse one row. And I want you to bless the other row. And he thought this is a good test. Now this man becomes a brilliant neurologist. And yet that test that he gave as a very young person, young adult best I can tell, He never seemed to question it for the rest of his life. I think he lived until his 80s. So obviously the radishes grew identical. And so he determined that God isn't there. And so he lived the rest of his life looking for signs. We're going to look at a particular portion of Scripture. I'm going to turn you to a couple of them where certain individuals who were, if we were to have met them, we would have been very impressed by their sincerity, their devotion to God, Uh, In fact, we would have looked up to them. Let me just give you a little description of who these kind of people were. These these were individuals that 
had the entire Old Testament, not the New, the Old Testament, the big, thick volume in your Bible, memorized for the most part. They were people that twice a week, they didn't eat food for long periods of time. They fasted in order to show their reverence for God. Uh, They kept on their heads sometimes little leather pouches with scripture in them and around their hands. On their doorposts of their houses, scripture and things like that. They gave 10% of everything they had to God. Um, These were people whose whole lives seemed to revolve around their utter and complete and sincere devotion to God. And these are the people that come to Jesus asking for a sign. So let's turn to uh, Scripture now. The uh, Bibles that are near you on the chair to page 1106. And you may be thinking of some of the people that you've encountered in your life that have sought a sign in some way from God but didn't get the sign. And and I hope this might help you to... uh, understand them better and maybe even to talk with them a little bit about things but turn to page 1106 and we're going to look at our first illustration of where this group of people come seeking a sign from Jesus and you're looking at Matthew the first book in your New Testament chapter 12 verse 38 through 40 it says then some of the experts in the law that's that bunch that I described along with the Pharisees those were also they answered him Teacher, pause for a minute because I'm going to emphasize this word a little later. When we read that word teacher in English, you have to understand what they were saying to Jesus. They were saying rabbi. They were acknowledging Jesus was a rabbi, which meant you are one that people are recognizing as a uniquely qualified spiritual teacher. Okay? And in the context of the day, when you believed in a rabbi, when you trusted in a rabbi, when you had your faith in a rabbi, you submitted your entire life to that rabbi's form of teaching with the goal of you yourself becoming like the rabbi. Uh, we, we really need to understand some of the historical context when we read scriptures about believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and so forth. That's the context that it was given. So let me go on. So they call him teacher. They say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, mind you, this group that's coming saying they want to see a sign, Jesus has already done hundreds, if not thousands, of miracles that they knew about. You know, he had raised the dead. He had walked on water. He had multiplied bread and fish to, to feed thousands. He had opened blind eyes. He had healed crippled limbs. He had done things that no one else in human history has ever done. He had done multitudes of signs. But they came to him wanting yet more. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus here is referring to his death and burial, followed, of course, by his resurrection. He says, that's the only sign you guys are going to get. Now, mind you, these were very religious individuals that were asking for this. Flip, Bear with me and flip to chapter 16 in Matthew. Just go to your right a few pages. That was in the second year of Jesus' three-year ministry. Matthew 16 takes place in the third year of Jesus' three or three-and-a-half-year ministry. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. 
Now when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test, means to try, to trip up Jesus, they asked him to show them a what? A sign from heaven. He said, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today because the sky is red and darkening. You know how to judge correctly the appearance of the sky, but you cannot evaluate the signs of the times. Jesus is referring to all the miracles that he had done to this point. His teaching, his sinless life, all that he had done. He's saying you don't recognize the, the one that these Jews supposedly have been waiting for, the Messiah, was right there in front of them. And then he says it again in verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. So why, why does Jesus seem to take such an edge to people, in this case, asking for a sign? Well, we've already kind of unpacked it a bit. Jesus had already done hundreds, if not thousands, of signs, and they just kept demanding more. Actually, they had already made up their mind about Jesus that they were going to reject him. They were not going to accept him as the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And so they just were looking for another way. But essentially, they were telling him, if you can't do something that so impresses us, that so shakes us, that so convinces us that you are all-powerful and we cannot escape accountability to you, well, then we're not going to pay much attention to you. I mean, that's really, truly what they were saying. So what is this sign-seeking all about? Well, Isaiah gives a depiction of the hearts of the people that were asking Jesus for a sign. And here's what I'm, I'm kind of edging my way up to. You are going to encounter, as, as I have in my life, people that are going to say, um, you know, all this God stuff, you, you know, if he's there, like I said earlier, why doesn't he appear? Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he do a sign? Why doesn't he end AIDS? Or why doesn't he end starvation or something? Do a sign, and then we'll be convinced is what they're saying. And they use that as uh, kind of the ammunition for us to back off and stop talking to them about spiritual things at all. So, Isaiah describes these people some 700 years before Jesus' time, and here's how he explains it. He says, this is God talking, he says, I kept extending myself to a people who don't care a whit. All day long I open my hands to those who constantly work against me. That's a perfect description of those religious people that I described, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the way they treated Jesus the entire time he was on earth. He says, all day long, I open my hands to those who constantly work against me, those busy pursuing their own rotten path, inspired by their own rotten schemes. In chapter 30, verse 15, this is what the Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, if you come back to me and, what does it say? Trust me, all through the Bible, folks, all through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, the plea of our Creator is be reconciled to me. Come back, trust me realign yourself with my will. Put your trust in me. You'll, you'll be safe. If you come back to me and trust me, you will be, what is the word? Saved. It's always the same. Genesis to Revelation. You cannot be saved. I cannot be saved unless I return to Christ, my creator, in trust. If you come back to me and trust me, you will be saved. If you will be calm and trust me, here's the emphasis again on trust, you will be strong. But you don't, what does it say? You don't want to do that. 
Those individuals in Jesus' day, that fit their description perfectly. There's individuals that you and I will encounter, and they will say, there's just not enough evidence. I need more evidence. I need, they're saying, a sign. God's got to do something more. But the truth of the matter is, in many of those cases, these are individuals that have already made up their mind. There's no sign that's ever going to be sufficient. Just as in Jesus' day, there was no sign sufficient for these guys because they had already made up their mind that no amount of evidence was ever going to be sufficient because they just simply didn't want God to be there. They didn't want him to be a real entity that they had to encounter and that they had to ultimately submit to if they were to survive. It just didn't rub them well. Now, Interesting case, we encounter a lot of people today in the academic world. This is not to be, uh, you know, aggressive toward anybody that's in academia or the science world. But, but you and I are often made to feel by certain individuals that their scientific knowledge and their scientific, uh, you know, insight has objectively led them to the conclusion that God isn't there. Many of the people that are in the scientific community, not all, but many of them are atheistic, and they kind of insinuate to us that are not as intellectual as they are about these matters, that if we knew what they knew, we'd know there's no sign of God either. And they can be very intimidating. You know, they're, they're brilliant people for the most part. So let me give you an example of, um, of one of these. This comes from a book by Michael Gillen, and it's one that you might want to consider. It's called Amazing Truths. Michael Gillen was the ABC uh, science editor for about 10, 12 years, and he's written lots of books, and he's a dedicated follower of Christ and is a brilliant scientist, um, was a professor at Harvard for eight years. But in the book, he talks about uh, some interesting scientific matter. If gravity, this is what scientists have found, if gravity were just one trillionth of one percent stronger, one trillionth of one percent, our universe would have collapsed catastrophically. That's pretty remarkable. It goes on. If gravity were just one trillionth of one percent weaker, our universe would have flown apart and we'd all be dust in the wind. Is it an accident that everything turned out so well? Well, a brilliant astronomer named Fred Hoyle doesn't think so. Fred Hoyle, the late University of Cambridge astronomer and avowed atheist, mind you, you're going to read some things that will stun you in a minute. He's an avowed atheist right till his death. He didn't think so, not for a second. After doing innumerable computations, Hoyle discovered that the odds of our being accidents of nature are comparable to the likelihood of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling scrap metal into a fully functioning Boeing 747. He goes on. One arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials with their amazing measure or order must be the outcome of, what does it say? Intelligent design. Yet he's an atheist. Its chances of originating by accident are so minute that they can be completely ruled out. Life cannot have arisen, what does he say, by? And yet he's an atheist. It goes on. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. And there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming 
as to put this conclusion almost beyond question, said Fred Hoyle. And yet he remained an atheist. So sometimes when you and I feel a little intimidated by people that are high in the academic world, the scientific world, and they will give us the impression that they have come to the conclusions that God isn't there, there's no sign of God, and they've come to this conclusion by objective scientific research. Well, that didn't sound very objective to me because all of his objective conclusions were telling him that an intellectual entity was there, that it was literally impossible for all of this to happen by chance. Um, there's a guy in Christianity Today, is, uh, his name I have up there is uh, Jim Spiegel, writing an article back in 2010. The article is called Unreasonable Doubt. And he quotes a contemporary philosopher, Thomas Nagel, an atheist, who authored a popular introduction to philosophy titled, What Does It All Mean? He wrote in it, I want, I want atheism to be true. Pause for a minute and keep the slide up. Can any of you maybe remember a time in your life where you didn't want God to be there? Because I can remember a time like that. I didn't want him to be there. I knew there were some things that I wanted to do that I had a pretty good hunch if he was there. He didn't, was not going to approve of. I didn't want him to be there. I didn't want to be accountable to anybody. This philosopher, this atheistic philosopher says, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope. Notice he hopes that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I hope there's no God, he says. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Does that sound objective or does that sound pretty subjective? So, some of the people in the scientific world that can be very intimidating to most of us, who give us that impression if only we knew what they knew, you know, we wouldn't believe that God's there either. Uh, they're not all that objective. And let me just take it a step further. Astronomers now believe that uh, between dark matter and dark energy, that dark matter and dark energy, which, which is invisible, they, they see evidences of it but it's theoretical stuff but they, these astronomers scientists believe that the universe consists of something called dark matter and dark energy and that 95% of the universe consists of dark energy and dark matter the things they cannot see which means all of their scientific knowledge take all the scientific knowledge in the world all the brilliant scientific minds on the planet they are getting their data from 5% of the available data. 5%. Could God be in the 95 that they can't see, that they don't understand, that they don't know about, and yet they give us the impression that if we only knew what they knew, there's no sign of God. They don't want God, in many cases, the truth is, to be there. So, what does this all revolve around then? Why were these religious leaders that fasted twice in the week, gave a tithe of everything they owned, and memorized the Old Testament and lived with scrupulous concern about uh, being ritually pure and ceremonially pure? Why is it that when Jesus showed up, who the Scripture says was none other than the Creator, God Himself in flesh, He was not just the Messiah, He was the Creator of the universe. The Bible is very clear about that. Why is it? that they sort of failed the test. The ultimate sign that the world has ever received is Jesus. You can't get away from it. 
He's clearly historical reality. He has clearly changed this planet. Most of the world sets our calendars by his arrival. Why did they need a further sign? Why did they demand a further sign? Where's this little verse that we're all kind of familiar with in church world. You always see some guy with multicolored hair at football games, and he's holding up a placard, and what does it say? Somebody. John 3, 16, right? And we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I don't know what version I'm quoting, man, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, King James, I still got the King James in me. I did King Jimmy for 17 years. <laughs> that whosoever believeth, I put that believeth on you, in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, let me show you that verse in a, a more contemporary English version. And one of the things you have to understand, all the English versions of the Bible that we have, they are positive, uh, laborious attempts at uh, linguistic professors and professionals. They, they go back to the original Hebrew and the original Greek, and then they try to find words, if they can find an individual word, to translate it into English. But sometimes they have to use something called dynamic equivalency. And what that means is there's no one English word that fits, and so they might have to use a few English words to communicate accurately the idea of the original uh, Hebrew or Greek word. All of our English translations are very, very accurate today, so don't get all freaked out thinking that there's one secret version that, that, that's um, you know, superior to all others. Not the case at all. Look at John 3.16 in a way you've probably never read it before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son whoever puts his, what is that next word? Trust. Whoever puts his trust in God's son will not be lost, but will have life that lasts forever. The word for believe, the word for faith, the word for confidence, the word for reliance, the word for trust, it's one Greek word, pistis or pistuo, depending on how it's used. And it is an appropriate and a much more accurate translation to put trust there. Because the idea of believing today doesn't mean much to us. You know, you can believe that I'm Randy Goldenberg, but that doesn't mean you trust me, right? Right? You might believe that I'm, I'm he, but you don't necessarily trust me with your bank account, right? It's always used in the context of trust. We need to be reconciled to God, the scripture says. And that means we have to go from a place of not trusting him to trusting him. It's very personal. It's very intense. Jesus gave the image of a shepherd and sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me that's real that's real personal and he says i give them free gift i give them eternal life and they'll never perish so whoever trusts in god's son it goes on it says for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him now this last verse is where i've been really wanting to bring you these people demanding signs this is the judgment that is the cause for indictment, the test by which people are judged, the basis for the sentence. The, what is the next word? Light. The light. It's talking about Jesus. It's talking about his entire life. It's talking about all his signs, all his miracles. It's talking ultimately about his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the grave that he predicted three times in advance before it occurred. The light. It's saying that, that God has so completely, so comprehensively revealed himself, revealed his plans, his purposes, his goodness, his trustworthiness, his competence in his character, his power to save us from the things we cannot save ourselves 
comes from. And it's all, all, all in Jesus, the one called the Son of God. And now when a person rejects Jesus, the light, it goes on, the light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and people loved what? The darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. These guys that looked so religious, that fasted twice in the week, that memorized the Old Testament, they were scrupulous about keeping the Old Testament ceremonial law pure. These individuals gave 10% of everything that they owned to God, in devotion to God. The truth was they loved darkness because when the light, when God in flesh, and you're going to see this in a minute in another scripture, when God in flesh was there, the ultimate sign was right before their eyes. They just didn't like him. They just didn't want him. They didn't want to think about having to trust him, submit to him follow him they just didn't like him they wanted to go their own way they wanted to do their own thing they were creating a convenient God listen to me carefully folks because we all have a tendency to do this they were creating a God in their own image one that they enjoyed following one that made them superstars and put everybody else down as scoundrels Jesus turned that all upside down he treated every single human being he met as worthy and you worthy of respect and someone that God loved and cared for those guys didn't like it that way so their their demand for a sign was insincere way way back when I was doing construction work I worked with this guy named Mike Whitmore I really like Mike Whitmore and Mike Whitmore would be constantly constantly badgering me all the time asking me questions always trying to you know poke holes into the validity of trusting in God and his word and so forth. And so he just keep questioning me, trying to stump me more or less, you know. And this went on for months and months, and I loved it because it just gave me an opportunity to show that there are credible answers and credible evidences for the faith that I believed in. So it went on and went on. One day we were working the stairway, and I, and I got kind of exhausted, and I said, Mike, I said, let me just ask you something, man. I said, if I could answer every one of your questions to your satisfaction, would you right now go up on the floor around all the other guys and just like I do, you would let them know that you have made a decision. You're going to follow Jesus Christ fully, freely, and forever. You're going to become a Christian. And you'd let all the guys on the job know. Would you do that, Mike, if I could answer all your questions? And Mike was an honest guy. And he said, no, nah, no, I wouldn't do that. See, it was never sincere. The questioning was never sincere. The demand for a sign was never sincere. Jesus couldn't have done more signs, and they still wanted more. They wanted more. It was not enough. And Jesus said, no sign's going to be given to a wicked and adulterous generation except talking about his death and his burial and ultimately his resurrection. So when we reject Jesus today, we have rejected the last ultimate sign And when someone shows no interest in Jesus today, be they a scientist or an academic or your next door neighbor, they have rejected the light and their demands for signs are not legitimate. There's a hidden agenda. You see, the most that a sign can do is bring conformity. So bear with me now. I want to do a little teaching for you. If I could get some help on the screen. You see, the Lord wants my conversion, your conversion, not conformity. Signs will only bring conformity. I'll expand this a bit. L- listen to a couple verses, and I want to show you how, how similar they are in two different translations here. Matthew 18, 3. 
in the Holman version, I assure you, Jesus said, unless you are, what is the word? Converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that clear? How many say, yeah, man, that's pretty clear. Some of you are not too sure. Okay, let's read it in another version. New American Standard. Truly I say to you, unless you are, what is the word? Converted. Is it important to be converted, evidently? You're supposed to say, yes, Randy. Unless you are converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How many care about entering the kingdom of heaven? Can I see your hands? You, you care about it. Well, then is it important that you're converted? And that you become like little children? Couldn't be more clear, could it? The Lord wants, if I could go back to the slide one time, you're a little too quick on the, on the trigger back there. The Lord wants conversion, not conformity. Signs can only bring conformity. Now we'll go to that slide and I'll, I'll unpack that a bit for you. Conversion versus conformity. Let's look at this. Here's what conformity needs. Conformity needs a sufficient display of power and inescapable accountability. What those Pharisees were saying to Jesus after he had done so many signs, they were saying, no, 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 do another sign. Show us a sign from heaven. Do something, essentially, that will scare the wits out of us and show us that we can't escape your power and being accountable to you. We don't like you. We don't trust you. We don't want to follow you. But if you sufficiently scare us and show us we cannot escape accountability, we'll go along with you. We'll conform. We'll do what you want us to do. Let me give you an example that we all understand. How many have passed on Route 15 recently, in recent year, the camera? The camera. How, how many know what I'm talking about? Route 15, the, the camera. How many slow down when you see the camera? Let me see your hands. Do you slow down because you so trust in the speed limit laws that you think they were... <laughs> You think they were ordained of God, and if someone were ever to go just one mile an hour over that speed limit, God forbid five miles an hour over, the world would cease to turn. And so you are so convinced in your heart at the value of these speed limits, then that's why, no, you slow down because you know that camera's powerful and you can't escape it. That thing will give you a ticket, it'll come in the mail, and you'll be mad as a hornet when that thing comes in the mail. You see, it brings conformity. You're doing the law but you're doing it because you're forced to. It's, it's iron fist stuff. That's all signs can do. That's all signs can bring. You say, Randy, but you said earlier that signs are service authenticating work. Book of Hebrews talks about that the early presenters of the message of Christ were accompanied by signs and wonders. Yes, when the New Testament was being formed, God gave signs and wonders. In the Old Testament being formed, he gave signs and wonders to show that the prophets were really his spokesmen. Okay. So there's an authenticating aspect to it, but these guys had all the authentic authentication that they needed. And some people that you and I encounter today, so forth. So let's go back to this. Conformity, all it needs is a sufficient display of power and inescapable accountability. But conversion, Jesus said, except you be converted and become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Conversion needs a sufficient display of what? Character. And a convincingly superior way or a convincingly superior philosophy of life. You see, if you're going to convert me, you've got to win my trust. You, you've, got, you've got to convince me that you're trustworthy. I don't care how powerful you are. You might be powerful and evil, right? Powerful people can be evil too. 
You've got to convince me that you're not only powerful and competent, but that you're good. And you've got to convince me that you have a superior way of life. And then from my heart, I'm going to want to change. I'm going to want to trust you. I'm going to want to follow you. Signs can never bring conversion. They can give it, get someone's attention, but they move toward conformity, and that's not conversion. Let, let, let me give you an example. Will you, will you guys be a parole board with me just for a minute? We'd be a parole. You know what a parole board is? It's, it's you know, the prisoner's been serving some time, and now the prisoner's going to come up and try to get his time, his or her time shortened. And uh, I, I would ask for hands of you that have experienced that, but we, we don't want to talk about that. Probably a lot of us have. Uh, anyway, we're going to be the parole board, though. So I'm going to bring two candidates before you, and you're going to pass judgment. Who gets parole and who doesn't? The first person comes before you, and they say, listen, I have learned my lesson. I'm telling you, I have learned my lesson. Everything that I did was wrong. I deserve to be in here. I know that, that uh, I acted outrageously, and I tell you what, I am so sick of living in a cage being treated like an animal that I'll do whatever it takes for the rest of my life to stay out of a place like this. You're the parole board. Think about it for a moment. Does this person get paroled? Here comes the second person. Second person comes in and says, I tell you what, I, I broke the law. I did every, I'm here because I deserve to be here. I am sorry for my crime and, and my selfishness and self-absorption, there was no excuse for it. I just did whatever I wanted and I realized I was a dangerous, hurtful person in society and you have my word. If you give me parole, I will live the rest of my life being somebody that contributes and cares for the rest of society. I will never break the law. I see its wisdom. I see how necessary it is for the peaceful function of all and I will dedicate my life to serving others and making the world a better place. Now, they're both saying, if you let them out, they're going to keep the law, right? That's conformity. They're both saying they're sorry. How many will let go, number one? Let's see your hands. Okay, you would. The person said they didn't want to live in a cage anymore, and they'd do whatever it takes to stay out of the cage. But the rest of us seem to be a little suspicious of something. How many would let go number two? Let me see your hands. Yeah. Number two showed conversion. They had changed their mind and heart. They were convinced from inside out. The other was just conforming because they didn't want to live in a cage anymore. Think about that one a little bit, Matt. <laughs> anyway, so that's the difference in conversion and uh, what we would call conformity. Now let me take it a little further. Bear with me. I'm going to do a little more teaching in Scripture if I could get those on the, on the board. Listen to these verses, and I gave them to you in several versions because I want this to sink in your hearts because I've been teaching people for over 40 years, and I know that people that have followed Christ for a long time that think they've got this don't really have it sometimes. And I want you to be crystal clear so that you can be a good communicator of the real gospel to other people. So here we go. Here's this great verse that shows that God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone instead to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise. That's the promise of the second coming. As some regard slowness. But is being patient toward you. Because he does not wish for any to. What is the word? So God doesn't want anybody to perish. But for all to come to what? So all need to come to repentance. Now. But what the heck is repentance? I mean is that a word we use a lot in society today? 
You think 100 people you work with are real familiar with repentance? I bet you you get about 100 different definitions. Some people would think it's, it's saying certain religious things or, or being sorry for your sins or weeping or crying. No, nobody seems to know what it means today. So let's look at some good, solid English versions that are attempting using dynamic equivalency to explain this to us in a way that it makes sense to current listeners. Here's one version, the New Century Version. He does not want any to be lost, but he wants all people to change their hearts. And what else? Oh, that's repentance. I change the way I think and feel inside, but I'm also going to actually change the way I live. That's what God wants for everybody. Let's look at another version, the Names of God version. He doesn't want to destroy anyone, but he wants all people to have an opportunity to turn to him and change the way they think and what else? The way they act. That's repentance, turning to God, changing the way we think about him and life and changing the way we act. Let's go to another version, the voice. Not wanting anyone to be destroyed, but wanting everyone to turn away from following his own path, my path, my ideas, my desires, and to turn toward whose? God's. That word repentance just got a lot clearer, didn't it? It just got very clear. The notion that a person can raise their hand in an assembly and say, yeah, I, I want to be saved, I want to go to heaven, I, I want Jesus in my heart, and, and that recitation or that prayer is sufficient to save them if it is not accompanied by conversion. We read about Jesus said, unless you're converted and become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless it's accompanied by repentance, which means changing our heart, changing our minds, changing our lives, is ridiculous. And yet in church after church and Christian book after Christian book, you'll read it. Just ask Jesus to come into your heart. Just say the sinner's prayer, and you're saved. Now, don't get me wrong. You can pray the prayer, and you might be sincere. You might have actually repented, changed your mind, changed your heart. Now you want to go God's way and not your own. You, because you really trust Christ, you want to go his way and not your own. See, some people think it's steps, too, that it's faith and then repentance. No, no, no. Faith and repentance are one side. It's just different sides of the same coin. When I actually put my trust in Christ, I cease to follow myself, and I trust him, and I follow him. That's repentance, changing my heart, changing my mind, changing my life. It is very dynamic. When a human being is converted, Converted, except you be converted, Jesus said, and become like little children. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. When a human being is converted, it is such a dynamic change that takes place. Of necessity, that person will be different. The very day they first trust Christ, the next day they'll be more different. The next five years, they'll be even more different. The next ten, even more, unless they stop growing. That is possible because when I trust him, I want to follow him. I want to know his way. I want to do his way. Let me show you one more verse from 1 Timothy 2.4. Since he, meaning God, wants all people to be, what is the word? Saved. That's a good thing. God wants everybody to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, when we read to come to a knowledge of the truth, we'd all be going, hmm, I wonder what that means. Because it's not that clear to us. So, so let's look at a few versions that help clarify it a bit more he wants all people to be saved names of god version he wants all people to be saved and to learn the truth it means the light goes on and i say oh i get it now god your way is the right way it makes sense 
my ways were, were wrong, destructive. I get it. Let's look at it in the New Living Translation. Who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth? It's like, oh, I get it now, God. My ways are, are causing the, destruction, the destructive chaos in the world. Your ways make sense. Of course they're right. Let's look at it in the J.B. Phillips. I love this one the most on this particular verse. None of them are perfect on all the verses. You just got to pick and choose. It's one of those things. His purpose is that all men should be saved and come to realize the truth. That's that light going on saying, oh, I get it, God. Everything you command me is because you love me. It's for my good. And everything you tell me not to do, it's because you designed me. And you know it is going to be disintegrative, hurtful to me and hurtful to others. I get it. The light's on. I've come to a knowledge of the truth. Then the, uh, the uh, shoot, I forgot the, uh, the Amplified, the Amplified, who wishes all men to be saved and increasingly to perceive and recognize and discern and know precisely and correctly the divine truth. Again, it's an awakening. It's a light going on. Conversion is big. Jesus said, except you be converted, become like a little child. Little children are trustworthy. They trust adults and they're teachable. They're humble. They trust and they're teachable. Except unless you become like a little child. He didn't say we have to work our way to heaven. He didn't say we have to be perfect. He doesn't say our good deeds have to outweigh our bad deeds. He did say we have to become humble and teachable and converted, which means I get it. I get it, God. My ways and everybody doing their own ways can't possibly work. That's why our world is so screwed up like it is. I am trusting you today, Jesus, and I am going to live the rest of my life learning from you and taking everything that you teach me about life and allowing it to mold and shape and guide and direct me. I don't need any sign, Lord. I just need you to show me how to live. I trust you. There's the big difference. So let me summarize it with this little phrase. Signs at best, can bring conformity. You know, if if I'm afraid that I can't get away when when the the traffic camera's there, I'll conform, I'll slow down. But I'm not really convinced that if I go five miles over, the world's gonna come to an end. So I might go five miles over sometime when the camera's not there. Just a little confession. Signs bring conformity. Conversion brings transformation. Conversion is powerful, folks. It's simple and powerful. It's beautiful. We just turn to our creator Christ in trust, and we become like little children, and we allow him to teach us the way we were actually designed to live. And we grow and we develop, and we slowly become that beautiful person we've always wanted to be, that person that's that Christ-like best version of ourselves, and it starts emerging, and we start becoming an individual that has the capacity to bless and to give and to serve an aching, hurting, broken, confused world. And many of the people that we uh, will encounter that you know, can be very intimidating, demanding signs, they've already had the ultimate sign. It's Jesus. So how can this sign-seeking thing be resolved? Well, we've kind of answered it, but let me just share a few verses with you quickly. From Psalm 910. Those who know your name, the name, the name of God in the Old Testament is talked about a lot. And what it meant to know the name of God, it meant to know the character, to know God personally, to know him intimately, to know his plans and his purposes, his will and his ways. The psalmist says, those who know your name will put their what? 
trust in you, relational. I trust you, so of course I want to know your will and I want to obey you. I want to obey you because I trust you. For you, O Lord, have never left alone those who look for you. Those religious guys that were demanding a sign from Jesus, God was right in front of them. They were not looking for God any more than a thief is looking for a cop when they're in the process of stealing. Many people demanding signs that will come to you and I and say, oh, well, you know, God could show himself if he wanted to, and he let my Aunt Lucy die, so I don't, I don't have any use for him. They're not looking for a sign sufficient. There will never be a sign sufficient. They're not looking for God. Now, what's the name of God? You and I must know the name of God. Listen to what it says in the New Testament book, book of Colossians 2.9. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in who? In Christ, the name of God, the, the way that you and I can know the nature, know the heart, know the mind, know the plans, know the purposes of God, know him personally and intimately, he has now made it possible in Jesus. Everything that we can ever know about God, it is in Christ, it is in Jesus. And so learning of him, and we learn of him, of course, through his word primarily, is how we resolve this looking for signs. Now I want to talk a little bit about you that are already believers, you're followers of Christ, but you're still looking for signs. And I'm not knocking that. Sometimes, you know, you're, uh, you're trying to make a decision. You know, should, should I take this job or that job? And, oh, God, give me a sign. You know, I just want to go where you want me to go. I just want to do what you want me to do, so give me some kind of sign. How many of you ever prayed something like that? You don't have a clear verse in Scripture, so you just want to do God's will, but you, you're asking for a sign. Well, God is gracious and gentle, and sometimes, I suppose, he may give signs. I suppose sometimes we generate them ourselves unknowingly. That can happen. And then I suppose sometimes the dark side may give us some signs because the scripture warns us about the dark side doing signs and wonders too. But there's a better way. There's a better way. You see, God's plan is for you and I to mature, to become so familiar with God, so familiar with his word that we understand our Father in heaven and his ways and his will so well that we can become sort of like Christian entrepreneurs for the kingdom of God. We understand what God wants done. We understand Dad's business. We understand the way Dad wants us to conduct ourselves. And so now we use our mature, free will, trusting in God, praying our way through it, always dependent upon him. We don't look for a sign. We use the wisdom that we receive from his word. And as mature sons and daughters, we become entrepreneurial to carry out his will in the various venues of life that we find ourselves you see, that's what he really wants. We sometimes think it's more spiritual to get a sign from God. Look, God, I'm, I'm yielded. I'm not going to do anything unless you give me a sign. Well, that's, that's saying that God wants a robotic relationship with us. Because that's what you're, you're saying. You're saying, God, I want to be a robot. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make a decision. I might make the wrong decision. I don't want to make the wrong decision. I want to please you. I want to be a robot. So give me a sign. Just tell me, how, how many of you have, that were parents, when your children were small, you had to tell them things like, Brush your teeth and wash your ears. Can I see your hands? Yeah. Brush your teeth and wash your ears. You, you were giving them a sign. You were, maybe you do it every time before they get in the shower. You say, brush your teeth and wash your ears. You, you get those ears now. Don't forget those ears. Brush your teeth. You're giving them a sign. So they learned to live by the sign. They wouldn't brush their teeth or wash their ears unless you gave them the sign. You had to tell them again and again. How many had to tell your kids again and again? Let's see your hands. Okay. Now, that was sufficient. That was fine. That was appropriate for the time. But do you want to do that when your kid's 30? No. You want your kid to be a wise, mature entrepreneur. You know, I think I better take care of my body. Somebody might look in my ear today. You know, I, I, I'm going to brush my teeth. I, I think it's a good idea. 
They're converted. They now have embraced the philosophy, you see. That's the goal, and it's the goal of God. I'm not saying that there aren't situations where we can't discern God's will as well as we'd like to, but I am suggesting there's a a place of growth and maturity where you can just make decisions because you're so familiar with God's principles and his purposes and his plans. And let me just share this with you, too. If you make a mistake, do you think that catches God by surprise? No, no. (laughs) He can very easily put us back on course as long as we're yielded and working with him. Psalm 26, 3, or excuse me, Isaiah 26, 3, it says, You'll keep in perfect peace all who, where it is again, trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. We don't need signs when we trust God. We have peace. Our minds are are always on him. It goes on to say this in Psalm 143. It says, make me hear of your faithful love in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me how I should what? You see, when the Lord teaches us how to walk, we don't need signs anymore. you'll, You'll be a Christian entrepreneur. You know dad's heart. You know dad's mind. You know dad's will and work. And you start just using that free will that he's given you. Not saying you don't pray. Not saying you don't trust God. Not saying you're not dependent on him. But you do it using that mind and reason that he's given you. I offer my soul up to you, it goes on to say in the voice. And then one final one, Jesus speaking in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Now this word yoke, it had two different meanings in Jesus' day. Obviously, one was the big wooden collar that was put on oxen's neck. But that's probably not what Jesus was talking about here. Rabbis in Jesus' day used the term, my yoke. And what it meant was, my particular emphasis of teaching. That's what I'm sure Jesus was saying. Take my yoke, take my particular emphasis, which was entirely different than all the rest of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. He said, take my yoke upon you, my form of teaching. And then, then what does it say next? Let me, what? Teach you. Teach you. Because I'm humble and gentle in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. We won't be worrying about signs if we just immerse ourselves in Jesus and in his teaching. And we'll be better equipped to deal with those that are demanding signs. And we won't be so intimidated by them. By the way, we did a whole course in here, a whole Bible Institute, to help equip you guys to show that there's powerful, credible evidences for believing in the Christian faith scientific evidences even. And so if you've never looked at this, it's online. It's called Why We Believe. It's on our Bible Institute section uh, on our website. If you want to be better equipped to give answers to people that question the validity and the credibility of the Christian faith. Let me close with a um, very brief story about a guy named Arthur Burns. Uh, Arthur Burns was, uh, as you can see, the chairman of the United States Federal Reserve System an ambassador to West Germany. Some of you are saying, what's West Germany? Well, before the Soviet Union disintegrated, there was East Germany and West Germany. Um, he was economic counselor to a number of presidents from Dwight Eisenhower to Ronald Reagan. And when he spoke, his opinions carried weight and Washington listened. Now, the story goes that Arthur Burns, who was Jewish, uh, started attending Christian prayer meetings at the White House in the 70s. And, and so he's there, and all the guys knew Arthur Burns was a, was a man of great influence. 
And they respected him greatly, and they were all kind of curious, what, what's, what's this Jewish guy doing here? But they didn't want to do anything to make him feel uncomfortable or anything like that. So week after week when they would close in prayer, they would have various different people close in prayer. Well, one week, the story goes, this young guy was in there who had not been there before. He didn't know Arthur Burns. And so he was talking in the meeting, and it came time. He turns to Arthur Burns at the end and says, Arthur, will you close us in prayer? And everybody around the room, the story goes, just kind of took a deep breath because they knew, man, you don't put Arthur on the spot like this. This young guy doesn't know who he is. And I want to read you the words. Arthur never missed a beat. The story goes, he grabbed the hands of the guys, you know. You, you know how we Christians do that holy hands thing and we pray? Here's Arthur's prayer. Lord, I pray that you would bring Jews to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would bring Muslims to know Jesus Christ. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would bring Christians to know Jesus Christ. Amen, said Arthur Burns. I know of no better prayer. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple tough questions. You see, sometimes people mistake conformity with conversion. So, some people mistake just being affiliated with Jesus with actually trusting him and being his follower. Some people want to use Jesus. They did when he was on earth. They, they want to get stuff out of him. They want to get blessing. Bless my, my, my dating life. You know, bless my, my career. Bless my business. Bless, whatever it is, bless me, bless me, bless me. And so Jesus is kind of like a little, little rabbit's foot they rub. And they, so they attend church. Some people think that the only thing God wants is for people to believe that he exists. Or the show respect. And so they think they show respect by coming to a place like this. Maybe once a year. Maybe every Sunday. Whatever it is. But they, they mistake all these things, these various ways of appeasing God and conformity for conversion. Now, I'm going to ask you a very difficult, potentially embarrassing question that will require you to be willing to humble yourself. But it's the ultimate question. We've read those words. Jesus said, unless we become converted and become like little children, we will not Enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. God can't save us if we don't trust him, if we don't turn to him entirely. So I'm asking you. You say, Randy, I, I've been coming to church forever. I, I grew up in a church, and, and of course I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm asking you to ask yourself, are you sure you're converted? The Bible uses all different terminology. It says born again. You've went from being blind to seeing. You've went from being dead to being alive. You've went from darkness to light. I am asking you, be very, very, very sure about this. Is what you are calling being a Christian, is it because you, you, if nobody else in the world cared about Jesus, you trust him and you would follow him until your death. You go to his word regularly because you want to. You want to understand everything in it. When he says, don't do something, you stop it because you trust him. When he says, start doing something, you start doing it because you trust him. Your whole life revolves around your trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be converted. Forget all these, these rinky-dink, ridiculous prayers that you you know just come forward raise your hand if you want eternal life just pray the sinner's prayer blah 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 i'm telling you what jesus told you if you're not converted you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven it's impossible of course 
So I'm not asking you if you had a sign. I'm not asking you if you had a miracle. I'm not asking you if you could tell me a dozen experiences that you had and you and God got this special deal. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. He said, unless you're converted and become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. This is checkup day, folks. Are you converted? That's the first thing. Are you really? If not, why not humble yourself this day Change your mind, change your life, change your destiny forever. Second question, could it be that you still look for signs because you haven't, you haven't learned to walk with God? You haven't immersed yourself in the teaching of the word of God. You're, you're not maturing. You're, you're, you're not knowing God's heart and mind and purpose and plans and principles well enough, so you're, you're still looking for signs yourself. And maybe this is the day you say, man, you know, I hear this stuff all the time. But the truth is, Randy, the only time I hear the scripture is when I'm sitting in church on a Sunday. I don't even crack it open during the week. I don't have a study Bible. I don't go to groups. I don't do anything to grow. Why don't you consider changing that this day? Third category. You've got some people in your life that, that, that really bounce this off you. Oh, well, I need more proof. I need more proof. I need more evidence. Why don't you consider going to that Bible Institute that I mentioned so that you can be better equipped to show them that there is powerful, compelling evidence for this faith in Christ we walk through. Three options today. Let's pray. Father, you know us. You know which of us are converted, which of us are not. You know which of us are growing and mature and which of us are not. You know which of us are equipped to communicate your message to those that are skeptical and which are not. We pray that your spirit will just, just stir us, motivate us to do those things that we each need to do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.